All right. So this is a little experiment, but I thought it might be fun for anybody who was watching uh, the debate earlier tonight about Marxism and postmodernism uh, with Charles Wolford uh, to, uh, to, you know, see anybody who wants to kind of continue the conversation a little bit, um, you know, you know, call in, uh, let me know what you thought or just kind of riff about any of the topics that we, uh, we talked about tonight. Uh, this is a chance to do it and we'll kind of see how it goes. I mean, uh, but yeah, this is, uh, this has been fun. Uh, I, I did enjoy that. I will, I will admit to getting a little frustrated at, uh, at a couple of points. Uh, I started giving poor Matt a very hard time about Richard Rorty, which I, which I should not have done. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I think it was interesting. Uh, I think that, um, you know, I, I wish there had been a little bit more emphasis on the Marxism uh, part of uh, of the Marxism and uh, and postmodernism claim, you know, that that's that's uh, debate uh, because obviously that is how it started. Uh, that uh, you know the the opening statements and you know we're we're about um, you know Marxism and postmodernism and the responses kind of were uh, and uh, and then. You know, then it was like kind of after that, that was like always something that was in the mix, but it felt like it was maybe 10% uh, of, uh, of what was in the mix. Uh, so I don't know, maybe that's unavoidable because the you know core disagreements uh, that I have uh, with those guys are so are so basic that it's like you almost don't even get to the Marxism yet. Uh, you know, because, you know, Marxism is this uh, really specific a claim about history and class society and you know capitalism and socialism uh economic equality uh and it's like all of those claims at least to my mind uh to even get them off the ground you know you kind of need these more fundamental claims about truth and knowledge uh to you know at least be a sort of shared background assumption and obviously that's what we ended up uh talking about for you know about 90 percent of it after the first half hour but um in any case um yeah i i think that um <laughs> yeah i i think that uh that charles uh you know i mean seems like you know seems like a very good guy and he had interesting things to say and you know and he seems to be a fan of the show um and uh and i and i really do appreciate the fact that matt stepped in to take all you know take all that time to moderate it and that charles uh was um you know that charles suggested the idea in the first place i mean obviously it's something that i think for uh the audience that watches the show there's a lot of interest in so i'm I'm happy that we did it i wish we hadn't gotten stuck on the super basic disagreements um for quite as much of the debate as we did. But anyway, you have, you know, if you want to weigh in, um, uh, just, you know, get into the speaker queue. Let's hear from Matthew. Make sure you're unmuting yourself. Hi, Ben. Thank you. Um, so I just caught the last 45 minutes or so of the debate. Um, so I'm planning to go back and uh, watch the rest of it, but yeah. I did find the last 45 minutes to be interesting. So if there's anything I I say that sounds like I don't know what happened for the first half of the debate, it's because I don't know what happened for the first half of the debate. Yeah, yeah. But um, I did think it was interesting. And um, it reminded me just, just practically speaking, it's not even really, a, um, I mean, maybe to a, to a postmodernist, this wouldn't be um, convincing because it's just a, a practical claim if you want to engage in politics yeah. but i thought it was um really uh illuminating recently when i listened to an old episode of this is revolution when they had vivek chiburon to talk about yeah marxism and i mean he just or not marxism postmodernism rather and yeah. he had such a such a clear breakdown of what postmodernism is because as you know it's so hard to define and when you try to define yeah. it you know people claim that you're oversimplifying it or you're um you know it's 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 like a moving target you know um, yeah. but he had such such a compelling demystification of it and one thing he pointed out 
um, was if you're a postmodernist and you believe that truth is so hard to access, if it exists at all, then how can you ask other people to take part in your political project? Because politics involves so much effort and so much risk. And if, if you're just kind of guessing at what <laughs> a better world would be and what values we should be uh, acting out in our life, and if, if you can't actually make any claims about your, your ideas or your values being superior to others, then how can you ask other people to, to go out and risk life and limb with you in any sort of uh, movement, whether it's a, a strike or a national liberation movement or whatever? Yeah, no, I think that's a fantastic point. Uh, which which reminds me, by the way, that uh, that when uh, when Charles uh, was started talking about alleged uh, vulgar Marxists or class reductionists, um, he he did mention Vivek as well as as well as Adolf Reed, and uh, and and I, sh- I should have followed up on that because uh, I'm a I'm a huge Vivek Chipper fan. Uh, and, uh, and and should have taken the opportunity to defend his honor as well. But um, I think that Vivek probably, I should go back and listen to that This Is Revolution episode, uh, he probably has an advantage over me here because when you go back and watch the first half of the debate, I think, you know, like like one of the first things that I say is like, look, I can, I can like kind of argue for the things that I think are true that conflict with what I think think postmodernists are saying but i am certainly not going to claim to be any kind of expert on it i i I feel like if like charles you know tells me or you know matt tells me then it's like no no no, they don't actually think that then i'll just you know i'm I'm not really going to fight too much about that right you know because like uh you know because i'm kind of willing to uh to take their their word for it but um whereas i suspect you know because like coming out of a kind of analytic philosophy background and and just you know i, I I'm, I'm like when i tried to read derrida and stuff i just found it so frustrated uh that um you know i i could you know i could believe that i'm missing things although i will say that if you go back and watch that i think everything that i said i think they're saying such and such I think Charles did actually embrace over the course of the uh, the debate, you know. So I think that was all right. But I'm, I'm sure Vivek is probably starting from a position of, you know, because you know he comes from a slightly different kind of academic background and everything that he probably has had to spend a lot more time, uh, you know, looking at some of this stuff. And and I'm sure, you know, he's better able to sort of break down. Here's exactly, you know, what uh, what they think. But yeah, I think it's a fantastic point. And, and I think it's a fantastic point that applies even if you look at a really watered-down version of some of the claims, right? Like what some postmodernists seem to be saying is like not only are like we guessing about what's true, but like there is no underlying thing that we're guessing about. You know, it's just like, you know, they're, they're, they're just sort of, you know, it's like uh, it's like Ghostbusters, you know, when they open up the fridge and, you know, it's the uh, – or, you know, this uh, – or actually, no, then, then it's just Zool, but like later on, right, when data is possessed and, you know, says there is no data, only Zool, right? You know, it's like there is no, you know, there, you know, there is no facts, only discourses. Uh, and in which case, uh, I mean, that just seems so crazy. I, I have a hard time knowing what to do with that. Whereas, like, but, but what I like about Vivek's point that you just relayed is that even if it is, um, you know, even if it's totally, you know, like, even if, they're not making that radical a claim, right? It's not that there is no like underlying facts that, you know, various discourses can like get right or wrong. It's just that like, uh, because, you know, knowledge is fragmented or, you know, whatever, you know, we can't like, we, we just can't really know what's true. Uh, yeah, that's a terrible fit for asking people to be engaged in any kind of radical political movement where it's like, yeah, go to the, go to the barricades because like, I don't know, this might be better if you happen to feel this way or uh, it might play out well, but you know, you know, who, who, who really knows, which, yeah. When Matt asked that question towards the end about, uh, you know, about, um, you know, like the version of Jesse Lee Peterson, who was actually like making, 
you know, right wing economic arguments that like, you know, if the, you know, if the best thing you can say in response to those arguments is, um, oh, that's just not how I see it or whatever, you know, like that's, that's going to be, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's not going to do much for like rallying people to actually make the economic changes that I want. Yeah, definitely. And um, the other thing that I thinking about when I was uh, watching the debate was, I wonder if some of this has to do, I wonder if some of this could be clarified actually by a debate about history and the you know the big oh, yeah. the big ac- academic debate over what explains um, the rise of Europe to to being this the center of global uh, imperial and economic power um, you know in the last five hundred years or so because of course you know a lot of postmodern critiques of um, science and other institutions which claim knowledge about the world they are they're, uh, eurocentric they're white they're uh. heteronormative all of this stuff and i basically i basically agree that you know in general the institution of science throughout its history and still today um, you know, has has had pretty much all of the biases that sure. that critique accuses it of having. But I think the reason why science is associated with Europe and with white men or or whatever yeah. is is not that there's something about the fundamental logic of science that is essential to Europe or to white men. I think it's just that the, the industrial revolution and, um, you know, the, uh, capital accumulation through, you know, pilfering colonized nations and, you know, all of the various factors that made Europe so rich and powerful over the 500 years allowed scientific institutions to develop in Europe that uh, became dominant. Yeah. And, and actually, I think the, it's not just to me, it's not, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think they became dominant because Europeans are better at science. I think Europe has, uh, Europe and its, you know, settler colonies have produced a disproportionate amount of what's considered authoritative scientific knowledge over the past 500 years because of those riches, because having those riches and having the education systems in Europe and the institutions that were, you know, developed in the Imperial core actually did create modes through which certain facts could be figured out that were very difficult to figure out without those riches and those institutions. Yeah. I mean, I think that seems, that seems totally right. I mean, like, uh, I mean, I, I don't think it's, yeah. I mean, in a way it's like not that deep. I mean, why, why is it that, uh, that all this, you know, science uh, was, was happening in Europe. I mean, kind of the same reason that, um, you know, that like in the, you know, whatever, like medieval caliphate period, like why was like, uh, why were like all the big mathematical advances happening in like Baghdad and like not one of the places being like conquered, you know, by, you know, by, you know, by the caliphate that's, that's, uh, that's headquartered there. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, this, this does also um, get back to what, you know, we were arguing about, I think probably in the part of the debate that you, you did watch, you know, about, uh you know whether like profit incentives can sort of corrupt the uh, the truth seeking mission, you know, of um, scientific you know institutions, uh, versus whether there there is something that's like so you know there is like a a way that those that what those scientific institutions normally do in producing knowledge actually is conducive to truth that's like before it's it's uh, it's corrupted right like so so I think one way to put a different kind of 
point on that, like with regards to what you just said is just say, all right, yeah, of course. Right. I mean, given this, you know, given this era, given the sort of overwhelming ideological pressures of, of, uh, slavery and colonialism, you know, which, which were to, to, you know, find, you know, tell some ridiculous stories about the people who are being enslaved or colonized to, uh, to justify it. Right. Like that's what you always, that's what people always do in these situations that, you know, that you, 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 you can't sleep at night if you don't, you know, if you don't have some kind of story that you can tell, you know, about, uh, about why it's not actually bad to, you know, to dominate people in these ways. Um, so yeah, all of those things led people to like make these like crazy, like race science claims or whatever. But like uh, one way to put a sharper point on this is to say, okay, but why, why was that bad? Right. What was the bad thing about it? And it seems like, well, um, it's, it's bad uh, in large part because it's not true. Right. I mean, because the claims that are being made that like, um, you know, white people are intellectually superior to black people or men are intellectually superior to women or whatever are just false. And it seems like if you, if you go with the sort of like radical kinds of skepticism or relativism about truth or knowledge, then it, it seems like you're actually have a much harder time articulating that critique because, you know, you don't, you know, like either you don't think there is anything that there is to like, you know, that there are facts, you know, uh, as well as just discourses about them, uh, or, or you don't think that there's like a, um, you know, that we can make these claims about, you know, things like counting as genuine knowledge or not genuine knowledge, uh, or, you know, or, or we just have no way of knowing what's true, you know, cause it seems like, no, we, we know that that's false and that's, and that's a big part of what's wrong with it. And even, even if you're saying what's wrong with it is the destructive effects. Well, a lot of the destructive effects are effects. They're destructive. We can't separate out the questions, right? They're destructive because it's false. Like if you're, I don't know, like if you don't think that like women should go to college in you know, Victorian England or whatever, because you think that, you know, female brains won't benefit from college educations, you know, then, uh, then like, yeah, that has really destructive effects because the squander potential and the sort of frustrated potential for flourishing and all that stuff. But uh, it wouldn't if it were true, right? Those wouldn't be bad effects if it were really true that women wouldn't benefit from, you know, college education. It only benefits because it's false. And that there is like, and yeah, if you're going to say that like the sort of Eurocentrism or whatever is, is um, like kind of endemic to something about like the nature of the science, I mean, beyond being wildly historically implausible that like, is like, obviously, you know, there are like alternate timelines where all this stuff arose, you know, like in, uh, you know, in some different part of the world at that same time, instead of Europe and, you know, Europe was colonized, but like also in, in a weird way, I mean, that's, this is just one of those things. Like, it's like, you know, it's like when you're so woke that you cross the event horizon and you become a segregationist, you know, like uh, you say, like, um, uh, yeah, you know, you, you really should, you know, you shouldn't be against like, you know, separate black, whatever, you know, because, you know, historically, blah, blah, blah. It's like the same thing. Like you're saying, like saying that there's something essentially white and male about science is a sort of like weird point of, of intersection between like the weirdest places where stuff like this can take people and like what Richard Spencer would think. Yeah, and it is, I mean, this has been pointed out many times before, including uh, by Professor Chibber, but it is very straightforwardly reproducing the colonialist, imperialist, racist narrative uh, to, right. to, to say that um, science is white and male. I mean, I think a lot of scientists who are not white and male might, uh, you know, raise an objection to that. Yeah, right. No, for, for sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, this is, yeah, you do get this weird, like, way that in this very social justice way, people will say, like, oh, there are these, you know, I don't know, indigenous people, women, whatever, you know, whatever, you know, have their own ways of knowing that are, you know, that are different from this. And it's like, yeah, that that is... Yeah, exactly. I, I, this, the indigenous ways of knowing or in, indigenous modes of knowing is a phrase that I've been hearing a lot recently. And I was thinking about it because I, I did take a, a 
course on how climate change affects culture from an anthropologist that was very interesting that talked about indigenous ways of knowing. And it is absolutely true that indigenous peoples have a lot of cultural knowledge that people outside those groups generally don't know about. I'm not saying they can't know about it. I think you can learn it, but they, you know, they, like, you know, we've talked, we talked about indigenous groups who have like a bunch of different names for all the different types of snow. And, you know, if I saw all those different types of snow, to me, it would be all just like the same snow. So I think there's something to it, but to me, it seems more like indigenous knowledge rather than indigenous ways of knowing. I don't think that they're like obtaining that information and observing the world in a way that's fundamentally different from the ways that non-indigenous people access knowledge about the world. I think they just have knowledge that's based on their, you know, the experiences that they generally have. And I think it, it it's an extra step to go from saying that indigenous peoples generally have specialized knowledge that people outside those groups don't have to saying like indigenous people have like a fundamentally different way of accessing uh, yeah, right. or producing knowledge. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I got distracted at the beginning of that because I thought, wait a second, I thought, I thought that was like a myth about the um, – uh, Inuits with the all the different words for snow, and then I looked it up, and no, that that's actually that's actually true. Um, you know, apparently it was very controversial for a very long time, um, but uh, at least as of this Washington Post piece in uh, uh, 2013, uh, David Robson says uh, uh, there really are 50 Eskimo words for uh, for snow, uh, so um, they. Yeah, they have, uh, yeah, taking, um, so anyway, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, and I think that, like, yeah, I'm sure various indigenous cultures have local, you know, I mean, just in the sense that it's like knowledge they have that other people don't, knowledge that other cultures don't, but that's not particular to indigenous cultures. Every culture has knowledge that, you know, that others, others don't, or, you know, at least, at least given sufficient isolation between different cultures for a sufficiently long period of time, that's going to be true, right? Like that you're going to have something that, you know, that there, you know, is a discovery that happens to have been made in one part of the world uh, and not in another part of the world. So at least for a while, people, you know, there are going to be people in one culture who know about it and not people in a, in a different um in a different culture who, who know about it. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, you know, that's, that's kind of a given, you know, that, that look, of course that would be true. But I mean, I, th- I, I think the, the question about, yeah, as you say, whether there's a different, <laughs> a different way of accessing, you know, the truth. Uh, if, uh, if you're a member of a particular, you know, indigenous culture, you know, that, that, that gets, you know, that gets silly, you know, pretty, pretty quickly. Right. I mean, that, that... yeah. I mean, and I think, Part of the debate probably comes down to the degree to which one believes in human nature. And I'm sort of a centrist (laughs) on uh, human nature. But, um, you know, I think we all have the same. And as far as we can tell, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, just to be clear, this is a a claim to knowledge which has been produced through a certain discourse. Um, but as far as we can tell, the brain is the thing that uh, accesses knowledge about the world. Right. And if we're using the same, you know, roughly the same brains to do that, then I think it's it's fair to assume that there are some you know, basic underlying constraints and, uh, you know, some basic ways through which humans get at knowledge and the, the differences in the, the knowledge and the discourses produced probably has more to do with the different circumstances under which those 
brains are operating than it does with the essential nature of the 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 people or the brains who are uh endeavoring to produce that mm-hmm. knowledge but if there's such a thing as as universal human nature i mean the answer is going to have to be of course right like you know i mean humans are a particular kind of animal like there are going to be general facts uh, about the behavior of that animal that have to do with, you know, biology. I mean, like that just seems like, um, I mean, you're not much of a materialist if you don't think that much. So I think that oftentimes when people talk about this stuff, it gets a little confused because I think there are like a few different issues. Like one of those is just, you know, that, right. Which, um, you know, is, like sort of uninteresting, but I think the reason it seems interesting is that people oftentimes when they're talking about human nature, they conflate it with much more interesting and dubious claims. For, for example, that there are like particular complex facts about how, how human societies are organized that, you know, are somehow results of that basic nature or that could not be otherwise given that nature or something like that. Uh, or that like, human nature is such that people are universally fill in the blank, you know, selfish, cruel, cooperative, kind, whatever, which is a lot of what I was, um, actually what Matt Brunig and I, he called in, we're arguing with, with Nathan Robinson about on, um, on Saturday, right. You know, cause Matt's point, which seems totally right. Is it's like, look, I mean, the, the sort of boringly correct answer on that last question is like, obviously there's a range, right? Like that, uh, that, you know, some humans are kinder than others, you know, some humans are more selfish you know, than others. And we all, you know, we all kind of know that, right? I mean, like the sort of interesting human nature questions are more like, where is that range bottom and top out? And, and similarly, I think that with the, um, the question about, um, you know, whether there are particular facts about, you know, how human society is organized that are inevitable, you know, given human nature, it's like, well, I mean, in, you know, in the time that humans have existed, there have been lots of different kinds of human societies. So like, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's be pretty careful about that one. And, and, you know, at the very least, if you want to be a good, um, you know, a good scientist, I mean, surely you should think that like how much change to society is possible, even if you think there are some kind of constraints that are put on it by human nature, I mean, surely like what those constraints are is something that like, you just kind of have to find out over the course of like centuries of trial and error. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I think that's right. And uh, thanks Ben for taking my call. Yeah, no, thank you. um, Accepting my uh, comments. All right. Thanks Matt. Uh, all right, so we are going to take L. Hello, Remember to- can you hear me? I can. Oh, great. Um, hi there. Uh, I I also only caught the end of the debate, um, so uh, I I only you know know about the the end of it. Um, but I had a couple of questions. So sure. Um, I'm I come from mental health and psychology and and literature and meditation. Yeah. Um, so uh, forgive some of my, you know, naivete with some of this terminology and stuff. But um, were you talking about uh, at the end a distinction between? Is it fair to say fallibilism and and hard skepticism? Uh, Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by each of those? So my understanding of fallibilism is that it's a uh, attitude towards um, truth uh, or certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, where you can't be you can't be certain about anything, right? uh, but it's because we are we're fallible as humans, and, and you know, that's where the word comes sure. from. Um, but that doesn't mean, therefore, that we have to be hard skeptics about about everything or about anything in particular. Um, that's that's my understanding of what fallibilism means. But again, I'm, I'm yeah, no, I, 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 uh, no, no, no. That's that's consistent with how I've, I've heard people use the word before. I just want to make sure. Uh, and yeah, okay, then like by hard skepticism, you mean something like, you know, there, nothing is objectively true, or we just, we, you know, maybe we just can never know, you know, we, we, we can never be like rationally justified in believing that anything is true. Or at least certain kinds of things are that. Um, right, right. Yeah, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, right. Okay, I got you. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly the distinction, right? That that I was that I was trying to make in response to uh, to Charles at the end, right? That like his Matt had kind of asked about what kinds of of skepticism are useful for a left wing political project, and um, and you know my you know like you know and and Charles kind of gave his answer. And yeah, that that exact distinction that you were just making is is the one that I was trying to to emphasize in response. That if that's what I thought, I, I just wanted to make sure. I thought I thought that was what you were trying to say, and I of course agree with you. I'm a fallibilist as far as I understand the term. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and then my next question is about postmodernism, and again, yeah, uh, yeah. very dangerous territory for me. Um, but uh, so, is it true that uh, a lot of postmodernist thinkers um, are uh, specifically? Uh, you know, focus on the idea of like existential nihilism, that like meaninglessness or, or, or meaning in some way is very important uh, in terms of how we analyze, um, you know, different epistemic commitments or different ethical commitments. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, that one I'm less sure about. So, I mean, I think you, you said a couple things. There's epistemic nihilism. I think epistemic nihilism is a distinguishable term potentially. Sorry, which one did you say? Because I, 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 I believe it. I said existential nihilism. Okay, ex- ex- yeah, okay. Sorry, that's what I heard. I think I just said it wrong because I said the uh, word epistemic a hundred times tonight, and those in my head. But <laughs> uh, but yes, I, I, I did hear I did hear you correctly. Uh, yeah, right. So uh, I'm not. I'm less sure whether there are any postmodernists. I mean, maybe other people who might be you know, who might be particularly familiar with some of these thinkers could like call in and like say like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, this is what I was talking about. But I mean, I think that, um, that, you know, cause like, you know, when I hear like people who are maybe post-structuralists, uh, talk about meaning, right. You know, like I, I think you're talking about like this, like, like meaning is sort of like what words mean, you know, kind of way. Uh, but, uh, Oh, okay. you know, like, uh, you know, cause, cause there's all this that I, I am, I'm not the best person to try to explain this because like it, it all, like my, my, my overwhelming bias is that it all just sort of sounds like, um, uh, <laughs> you know, well, that's, that's the point I was kind of trying to lead to a little bit, but I, I might be mistaken nihilism. My, 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 my point or my understanding at this uh, stage of, of some of this stuff is that it seems to me uh, a, an artistic or a literary and mm-hmm. even and at times a mystical practice rather than a purely like, you know, um, philosophical enterprise. I, I don't know if this distinction is, is something that you mm-hmm. would agree with, but I, that's what I see so far. I don't know if you understand what I mean exactly. Uh, I, I think I might. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, like some of this stuff, I mean, this is what I was talking about, like actual, like actual literal linguistic meaning, being something that like to the very limited extent that I think I understand somebody like Derrida is saying, uh, I, I, I yeah. think that it's like, it, it, it actually does have roots in like certain kinds of debates about like, uh, like literally like interpretations of texts and like whether there's a, a right one and, you know, stuff like that. Um, right. And, and so, which is a literary concern for me, as opposed to like, yeah, sure. you know, a, a very like you know epistemic or metaphysical concern. Um, is that f- a fair distinction or no? Uh, yeah, I think so for sure. I okay. mean, like it's. Uh, I, I mean, and this is where I, and this is where I say right. Like, I mean, I, I you know, in some ways, I feel like extraordinarily poorly qualified to. Uh, and I'm less so. So to, to sort <laughs> yeah. of to sort of weigh in on that because like I I I. Like, like my sort of grumpy sense of some of this stuff is that it's like, okay, there are these kind of distinctions that, you know, made that like, are that like, okay, I, I think it's maybe wrong even there, but like, I understand what they're, what's meant by them in the context of like literary criticism, but then it seems like they're being extended somehow to talk about these questions about metaphysics or epistemology in way in ways that yes. I, I could never yes. quite tell how much those extensions are supposed to be metaphorical <laughs> and like how, how much of it they're yeah. saying no 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 literally the same thing that's you know the case about you know 
about the, you know, about like reading, you know, how to interpret texts as like the same way we should think about, you know, science or knowledge or truth or whatever. And, and, um, and, and either way, I'm just very confused about, um, you know, about what the, the claim is, right. Which is, which is kind of, kind of the, yes, the problem. I mean, like at, at the, you know, at the very tail end of the, the debate, you know, I, I was sort of given my, um, like, okay, to be fair, here's, here's what I think is wrong with like the kind of academic culture of analytic philosophy. But I mean, I think the thing, the thing that's often wrong about the academic culture of continental philosophy is that like, if you think about what the sort of um, like core example would be of like the sort of like, of like the kind of like the pleasure of like doing philosophy in each way. Right. You know, that it's like, what you're like, what you're really doing, if you're doing it, like analytic philosophy, what you're probably like, if, if you like it, right. You know, what you're probably really enjoying is like, Oh, here, I, I, I pinpointed the exact place where this argument goes wrong. Right. Whereas like, it seems like right. what the, um, what the pleasure is a lot of times, right. You know, of, of, of studying, you know, continental philosophy, it seems to me like no shade on this. I think there's nothing wrong with like taking pride in something like this, you know, is, like figure is like starting to feel like you understand what's being communicated by some really densely written text. Right. Like, like, like I think that's like in practice, like I think if you spend a lot of time reading. Starting to understand uh, what. Uh, starting to understand like some incredibly densely written, like, like text, right? Like, so. It's so interesting you say that, which I find to be a, a religious practice or a meditative practice, you know? Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah, I can see that, right? Uh, but like, but I mean, I think that I mean maybe I'm wrong about this, but I mean my my sense is that people who spend a lot of time reading like, you know, Derrida or or even like it doesn't have to be just the postmodernists, you know, like Heidegger or whatever, like that that's like that that's like a lot of it. it's like oh now I get it, right? You know, <laughs> you know exactly. And, it's spiritual experiences, I think. Maybe, yeah, yeah, I think it's at least. Um, you know, I mean, maybe because I, I come from the meditation world, by uh-huh. the way, I, I'm very yeah. Buddhist, Buddhist inspired mm-hmm. and inflected and stuff. And and I just yeah. see a lot of resonance between this and like, you know, experiences that people talk about in in, you know, Buddhist meditation practice or whatever. Um, it's it seems very similar, um, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. That make, no, that makes sense to me. Uh, yeah, I, I could see how. Yeah, I could I could definitely see the analogy. So. Um, so, yeah. And, and I think that like. Um, and again, I, I mean, I think there are good things and bad things about both, but I think that no shade on spiritual experiences from my perspective. I think right. those are good things. Right, 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 right. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like I, I, you know, but like also I, I think that like a big potential disadvantage of that is that the more you're sort of focused on that, you know, the more you're like vulnerable to things that just like, actually don't make very much sense like that like that that's yeah. right that's you know? right the danger of spiritual experiences in my opinion uh-huh. is religion is religion and religiosity you know um occultishness mm-hmm. uh or at least it can be uh, maybe it has yeah, that, yeah, maybe right. there's no applicability in this particular space but no but i i think there probably is an applicability like I do too. I, I, <laughs> yeah like yeah i mean like if because if you're like the i mean not to you know, not to say that these are figures who have like a comparable level of insight or that they're like morally comparable, you know. But like the same way that like if you're, I don't even know, like if if you're, uh, um, you know, like if somebody is like being taken in by you know whoever, right, the Maharishi, L. Ron Hubbard, whatever, like that, like they're they're um, yep. that like you know, you're so focused on, it's like, Oh, like, I just don't get what they're saying. Right. Like, 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 like I, I, I need yep. to work on like, you know, I'm like adapting, you know, adapting my thoughts to, so I, I understand the teaching yeah. that, that like, I think spiritual gaslighting um, is what I like to call it. Yeah. 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 yeah right. That, that makes sense. So it's like that, like, I think similarly, I think that that could absolutely happen with this kind of like this style of, of, uh, of philosophy. Right. I mean, like there's a certain, absolutely. you know, there's a certain kind of like, um, like, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think there is absolutely like a certain kind of like thinker who will just like have the, you know, the people who, 
I think maybe like the analytic philosophy version of this is like maybe some people who study with Wittgenstein or whatever, but like people who are just like, you know, like professor X students and like that, like sort of defines their entire, like, you know, intellectual lives, not in the sense that like, you know, the sort of healthier version that like, Oh, or, or William James. I mean, he's pragmatist rather than, yeah, yeah. but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That like this, that like, not, not like in the healthy way that it's like, Oh, like I found the like project this person is pursuing really interested. And so I'm going to like sort of do my, like, you know, try to like do some version of it or extend it or whatever, but like, you know, that you have, but in this like, yeah, really slavish way where it's like, you know, like you, you'll like literally find like, you know, people like this who like, will will like travel around with like, you know, you'll, you'll, you know, see them at something and it's like almost like seeing like a, um, you know, movie star with their entourage, right? You know that they'll 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 have this like yep. circle of uh, of of like yeah. graduates. And I have a theory about this, by the way. Oh, I, please, I, please, I, yeah, yeah. And this is just a you know a theory that is completely theoretical. But it seems to me that what happens with this sort of thing is that you have a certain kind of an idol worship happening, where the, these people become a meditation object, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and they have this in in you know the guru traditions in India and. Um, where the guru becomes a meditation object, you know, uh, at least that's how I, I, I can, I kind of conceptualize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think there's, I, I think there was absolutely a, uh, an analogy uh, to, uh, to that in, uh, in some of these, in some of these, these epistemic cases. Like I think, I think, yeah, I think, I think for sure, um, you know, like Heidegger or, or Wittgenstein, you know, for that matter, like had, uh, you know, had people like, like these people who were just like, you know, their students who were like, in the sense, like, not just that they were like taking classes from them, but like that they would like follow them around to like, try to like, you know, just like sort of, you know, catch pearls of their wisdom, you know? And uh, Actually, I, 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 I mean, that's a, that's probably an uncharitable exaggeration on my part, but, but it's close to that potentially to some degree. Yeah. Uh, like, like that's fine. Right. But, they become larger than life in some sense. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, they become larger than life. It's like that it's like that the sort of like that like the the sort of experience of like being around them and talking to them is like a big part of the value of being in that, you know, that place, mm-hmm. you know, for 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 people and like and I don't think I mean I I could be wrong, but like I don't, you know, I you know, I'm sure everybody who's like famous and and uh and influential or whatever like has like you know some students were kind of in awe of them like i'm sure that's like relatively universal but like i think that uh, yeah me too um but i i i suspect that like um that that there are people like i don't even know if like i suspect that like even like Bertrand Russell or somebody like that, right? Somebody who was like iconic on that level that probably <laughs> the vibe was not quite the same as, as these, uh, yeah. as these circumstances, because like, it's not that like, like also actually something about, I think that probably, well, he would actively fight against such a thing. I would expect uh, as well, at least from what I understand of Bertrand Russell. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I mean that, I think that might very well be true. I mean, I think that that's a, I think that that's a feature of at least some of the, like academic figures who who seem to attract this like kind of following that it's like that it's like a that it seems like an unhealthily large part of somebody's identity that they're like a, a student of their work right right i i do want to say however that i don't necessarily think that like wittgenstein was wrong for being this way i don't know heidegger very well but it seems to me that wittgenstein was like a genuinely like practicing person when it comes to this kind of thing. Like yeah. I think that he was actually like genuinely practicing some practice of meditation that was mm-hmm. working for him. It seems to me, um, potentially at least. I don't okay, know. Okay. 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 No, sure. Right. Cause like, I, I think that you could, um, cause I, I do believe in the importance of meditation myself, um, ideologically, um, right, I got you. So I think that like you could probably make a couple of distinctions here. One of them is like the sort of primary worry that I would have about all of this stuff, which is basically just that like it's not conducive, you know, it's not like that conducive to like thinking as critically as you should about what people are saying, right? But like that's sure. like that's like one kind of worry you could have about it. But like 
a different kind of worry that you could have about it is like the sort of, um, you know, what, what you said earlier, the, the, you know, spiritual gaslighted worry that like you, that's, that people might, um, you know, that like, I mean, obviously lots of like guru figures, like will like really take advantage of people in bad ways and all this stuff. And like, even, even short, even short of that, right? Like even somebody, even somebody, and I've heard that Wittgenstein was verbally abusive, at least he was a very uh, mean, um, uh, Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I. I. I think. I. I think I remember reading the same thing. Yeah. So. So I think that. Uh, so I think that's like one kind of, and like even short of that, right? I mean, even even if even if somebody's being like fairly gentle, they're not trying to exploit people and and, and all of that. Like, uh, you know, it, it could just you know you could still be like. Uh, it's a very overused term, but you know you can still be something of a grifter, you know, without even doing it. Absolutely, that, you know? this is this is my so this is my thing. I, I I'd love to talk to you about this yeah. some, some other time. Yeah. Um, you know about my theory of psychoharmony that I've, I've talked to you about uh, briefly before. I vaguely remember this was in like this was in like Twitter messages. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. 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 And, and it's a theory. I, I, I like to think it's some something like an analytic or mm-hmm. pragmatic maybe theory of meditation. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so, yeah, I'd love to talk to you about that sometime. And uh, the reason in particular is because it does specifically touch on hard determinism. Um, mm-hmm. and I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. Cause I think I have a different take than Sam Harris. Um, but I do agree with him about uh-huh. hard determinism. Um, but that's another, that should be for another time. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think I do. I think I do remember that conversation. I, I uh, but but that is interesting too. We bring up Harris because, uh, you know, there might be some, um, uh, you know, it, it might be at least interested and suggestive that you're both into uh, that you both have this this sort of um, like the uh, the the hard determinist stuff and and that you're both into uh, into meditation and uh, and well I mean we both were trained in Buddhist meditation so yeah. that's probably why yeah yeah yeah, uh, but yeah. no, I, no I but think I think it's, there might... it's true obviously but well but sure yeah. sure sure but like they're like just the just the sort of uh, I mean putting aside whether any of it's true or false like I mean I think there might be something there might be something interesting about like the um, the the way that like hard determinism and uh, might kind of jive with that kind of spiritual worldview, which in, in, I think it does. I, it's for me, it's not a spiritual worldview. I'm an atheist. I, yeah. I view it as, as just a theory of meditation devoid of any, any kind of concept of spirituality. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. 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 Which, which, which again, there's, there's a lot of, <laughs> you know, you might be the, uh, you might be the much better version of Sam Harris. So fair enough. Uh, I would hope. Thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks for the call. Yeah. Uh, I am probably going to uh to wrap it up uh pretty quickly um at uh at this point. Uh do um yeah, want to plug uh some stuff that is uh that's coming up. Um I also got back from um I was in California over the uh, over the weekend and uh, just got back um, last night. And it's it's basically been a long uh, a long several days. So I'm I'm proud of myself that I managed to uh, be you know coherent about postmodernism for a couple of hours. Uh, but uh, might do some kind of stream or something here maybe tomorrow. Uh, because of course tomorrow is the 10 year anniversary of Christopher Hitchens death. And I have a book about him that's coming out in just a couple of weeks. Uh, so, uh, that would, um, yeah, that would make sense, uh, to do something, but I'm not too sure just yet on uh, Thursday. Um, Dylan Burns is going to be on, uh, for uh, the uh, the YouTube channel, we are going to be doing a Thursday night debate breakdown. Uh, speaking of of, uh, of Hitchens, because he's one of the uh, four participants in this uh, of this old debate uh, from the '90s about the death penalty, uh, the mid to late '90s. I think it's a really interesting, strange thing. It's uh, it's Hitchens and Jesse Jackson arguing with a couple of ghouls from uh, the National Review magazine about the death penalty. 
and Ed Koch for some reason is uh, is moderating it. It's just one of those little you know, <laughs> just one of those little bits of YouTube gold that you know this this thing existed in the first place and is preserved now. So we're gonna watch that tomorrow night. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm trying to get uh, Lillian Sikarchia uh, to uh, to come on here soon. Uh, figure maybe we could do like a you know weekend thing uh, that would be. You know, since I've been trying, you know, like the weekday ones of these I've been trying to do in the evenings, um, you know, but uh, the weekend ones, since people aren't, you know, people who are in, uh, you know, the, you know, in um, time zones such that, you know, they'd be at work uh, in the middle of the day during the week are often not at work. And people like Lillian, who are in the UK or Europe, uh, can participate uh, since it's not like if we do a stream at like noon Eastern, it's not too terribly late, uh, you know, where she is. So I'm trying to get her to come on maybe this weekend to uh, do a uh, call-in uh, episode that could be like, you know, I don't know, everything you ever wanted to know about Marxist theory, but we're afraid to ask. I think that could be a lot of fun. And for sure on uh, Monday, uh going to have a regular GTAA episode. Uh, it is, we're going to have Emma Vigland on. Uh, so probably going to be, you know, kind of a, a meat and potatoes GTAA content thing where we, you know, watch some right wingers and uh, and talk about them should be fun. And then we're going to be off for, uh, you know, probably the week between uh, Christmas and New Year's, but have lots and lots of good stuff planned for January as well as, of course, what I'm really excited about in January, which is that I want to start doing some in-person events for the new book I already have some stuff lined up for Toronto in, uh, in mid January, both sort of a bookstore thing on one of the nights that I'm going to be there. And also I'm going to be um, doing a talk for political science students at um, York and U of T uh, joint thing. Um, one of those nights and, uh, and one for the philosophy department at Ryerson, on another one uh so really looking forward to that trying to line stuff up for for new york and baltimore and a couple other places but lots of good stuff coming up uh i am going to stop before i become completely incoherent uh left is best